0: Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines, this is Tom Switzer. Well, the scenes across the US in the past week or so, they have been profoundly disturbing, haven't they? The protests are in response to the horrifying image of George Floyd, an African-American man and a Minneapolis police officer who killed him by kneeling on his neck for close to nine minutes despite his pleas that he could not breathe. Those demonstrations, as we all know, turned into wanton violence and destruction, not only in the Twin Cities, but all across American cities.
1: The days are quiet and peaceful, but it's really the evenings and the nights that usually bring that fury and those frustrations that tend to boil over. And the result are these fiery clashes that we've seen across the country. And of course, here in New York, we've already seen dozens of people injured, hundreds of people arrested. And tonight, the
0: expectation is that we could see more of these demonstrations. How did America get to this point? And who precisely are Antifa, the militant left-wing political protest movement that are part of these riots? We cover our face because the Nazis will try to find out who we are. And that is a very bad thing because they harass people. When they organise, they kill people, they hurt people, they fight people. And we're the ones who are fighting back. They are the second coming of Hitler. For several decades, America has been a deeply divided nation. Just go back to the mid to late 1960s, when America experienced those long, hot summers, protests and riots over Vietnam, race, and Martin Luther King's assassination.
2: The American people are deeply disturbed. They are baffled and dismayed by the wholesale looting and violence that has occurred both in small towns and in great metropolitan centers. No society can tolerate massive violence any more than a body can tolerate massive disease. The reason that black people are in the streets has to do with the lives they're forced to lead in this country.
0: And they're forced to lead these lives by the indifference and the um, apathy and a certain kind of ignorance, a very willful ignorance,
2: on the part of their co-citizens.
0: According to the British historian Max Hastings, past guest on this show, in those days, quote, it seemed that race, the election and the Vietnam War were tearing asunder the greatest country on earth. And to think those deep divisions in America have clearly grown since the 60s, especially in the Trump era. Just think of that toxic polarization, hyperpartisanship in Washington and elsewhere, not to mention the crisis engulfing American cities. So how did America get to this point? Robert Dalek is arguably America's most distinguished living presidential historian. He's author of 14 books, including on presidents FDR, JFK, LBJ, Richard Nixon, and Ronald Reagan. The latest book is called, How Did We Get Here? From Theodore Roosevelt to Donald Trump. It's published by HarperCollins. Robert Dalek joins me from Washington, DC. Hi there, Bob. Hi, Tom, lovely to hear from you. It's great to have you on the show. Now, these are dark days in Washington and across other US cities. But America, as I mentioned before, has experienced similar protests and violence. What do you think distinguishes this crisis from, say, the widespread unrest in
2: 1968? Well, Tom, one of the things that distinguished it was the fact that Lyndon Johnson, who, of course, was present then and was presiding over the Vietnam War, which was at the centre of what Uh, disturbed so many people in the United States and triggered so many of these uh, demonstrations. But Johnson had the good sense to give up running for president. He was a very skillful politician. Now, we have a president who will not give up, who would not resign, And the only way we're going to get him out of office is by defeating him in the election that comes up in five months from now. It's a very disquieting situation. And the demonstrations across this country, I believe, are not just simply a response to the tragic killing of that black man in Minneapolis, but it's also a protest against Donald Trump's presidency. You know, Tom, he's never reached 50% approval in the going on four years he's been in office. And this is unprecedented. No president in a four-year term since we've had polling in the mid-1930s has gone through a whole first term without ever reaching 50% approval. Now, you mentioned LBJ as president in
0: 1968. His successor was Richard Nixon, to whom you dedicate a chapter in your new book. Uh, What distinguishes Trump from Nixon, who effectively linked Democrats to crime and disorder? Well, Nixon
2: was, I think, a much more skillful politician than Trump. And, of course, the great mistake that Nixon made was not to destroy the tapes, that uh, nailed him uh, for his uh, criminality. And the greatest difference is that Nixon was a very skilled foreign policy maker, leader, because he advanced relations with China and uh, broke through the long period of disaffection between the two countries. And also his secretary of state, of course, was Henry Kissinger, who will be remembered as one of the great secretaries of state of American history. And, of course, uh, Kissinger did that shuttle diplomacy that facilitated relations between Israel and the Arab states in the
0: 1970s. The chaos in 68, that drove voters away from Democrats. It obviously helped Nixon but you think that Trump here will suffer a landslide. I mean, some people are arguing in the United States that the violence and the looting triggered by the murder of George Floyd, that will actually help drive voters to Trump. You
2: disagree, why? Well, I disagree because, as I said a moment ago, he's never had 50% approval. Mm. And the major uh, media outlets in this country, except for the Wall Street Journal, have been consistently attacking Trump. And he knows this, and so he has canceled the White House subscription to the New York Times. He repeatedly condemns the Washington Post and the New York Times to uh, most important newspapers in the United States. And there is just a sense that this is a man who does not understand Presidential leadership and has not achieved anything all that significant. Now, you know, he said that uh, he's done more for African Americans than any president in history uh, since Lincoln. And it's absolutely absurd because he obviously doesn't know about or is ignoring the civil rights legislation of 1964, 65, 68 that were all put across by Lyndon Johnson and those were landmarks. landmark. But Trump hasn't done anything. And as the critics say, what's the
0: record? What can he point to? My guess is Robert Dalek, the distinguished presidential historian. Bob, all of this is happening against the backdrop of this pandemic, the coronavirus, a lockdown and three months in which 40 million Americans have lost their jobs. Does America's experience with the Great Depression in the 30s, and you've written a book about FDR, does that provide any lessons for the looming economic crisis, particularly given that we still have several
2: more months of a Trump presidency? What I'm hoping is that people will come away from this Trump presidency understanding that it is a mistake to ever put in the White House someone who's never run for any Political office before. The longest serving Speaker of the House in the 1960s was a man named Sam Rayburn. And he didn't think all that much of the people around John Kennedy in his cabinet and White House office. And Rayburn said, I wish just one of the people around Kennedy had once run for dog catcher, meaning that. They should have run for something because they learned from this. And I think the country now is in a mood to have someone with experience and background.
0: Now, Bob, in your book, you say that future historians will want to ponder, quote, not only how earlier presidents opened Trump's way to the White House, but whether there is something deeper in American society that spawns so unsuitable a character to become president. Tell us more. In
2: 1920, when Warren G. Harding, who was one of the poorest presidents in our history, when he was running, there was a famous journalist at the Baltimore Sun, the newspaper, by the name of H.L. Mencken. And Mencken, in July 1920, said, Someday, the American people in their wisdom will put an absolute moron in the White House. And he, of course, was thinking of uh, the man who became president that year. He saw that there was the possibility that we could end up with someone who was so unsuited to the highest office. And we've had some pretty lousy presidents, Tom.
0: In fact, because yeah, I was going to say the, that to understand Trump, surely you have to understand the context in which he came to power, the Iraq invasion, the global financial that's, crisis, that's right, and a lot of those right. policies were put in place by his predecessors, Bob, to be fair to Trump. People
2: in this country, they relish something new when it comes to presidents and politics, and uh, for example, Theodore Roosevelt called his administration the new nationalism. Wilson, Mm. the new freedom, FDR, the new deal, and Roosevelt also said we must be prophets of a new order, and Kennedy, the new frontier, and Obama, it never became a uh, a sort of motto of his uh, administration, but he toyed with the possibility of uh, the new foundation. So, you see, people like to hear that American politics is launching something new each time you get a new administration. And that was a real strength for Trump in running in 2016, that he was a new face on the scene. He had never run for anything before. He had never served in any office before. He'd never been elected dog catcher. (laughs) That, that's right. Exactly. And, you know, and uh, going back to um, uh, three presidents in modern history had never run for anything before they became president. The first was William Howard Taft, who, but he had been governor general of the Philippines and he had been Fiona Roosevelt's secretary of war. And, of course, there was uh, Eisenhower and before him Herbert Hoover. And Hoover had never run for anything before, but he had been Secretary of Commerce for eight years and was a very, very savvy man and probably the unluckiest president in American history because he was uh, struck by the... uh, the great depression and eisenhower of course had never run for anything before but he had a long career as a storied general and a great military leader who uh, helped lead us to victory in world war ii but trump you know never ran for anything and never served in any office and uh, he's he's really just uh a kind of duck out of water. Yes, so in other words, these presidents were all
0: visionaries but not Trump. You say he's shown no interest in learning from his predecessors. You call Trump a do-nothing-but-damage president. Bob, um, let me remind listeners and yourself something that uh, Robert Gates, he's a former defence secretary who served with distinction in both Republican and Democratic administrations. In 2014, Bob, Gates said, quote, The greatest national security threat to the U.S. is the two square miles that encompasses the Capitol building and the White House. Now, Gates (laughs) made those remarks before
2: Trump arrived on the scene. Right, right. (laughs) How would you respond to that now? (laughs) Well, it speaks volumes, Tom, about the scepticism in this country about politics and politicians People don't like politicians in this country. And indeed, uh, I exploit that in a sense when we live in northwest Washington and we're quite near the zoo. And so sometimes when I'm out walking our dog and somebody will stop me and ask me, is this the way to the zoo? And I point them in that direction. And then I joke and say, that's where we keep the politicians at night. (laughs) One final question, Bob.
0: A lot of Australians, indeed people all around the world, are looking at these riots. They reflect on the kind of political dysfunction that we've just been talking about. If America can't police its neighbourhoods, how on earth can it police the Asia-Pacific in the face of a rising China? It's a
2: very good question and a deep concern because, remember, we've had a history of isolationism And in the 1930s, when uh, the world was going to hell with uh, the Nazis and the fascists in Europe and the, the Japanese militarists in Asia, the United States stood aside. It really did not play the role it was supposed to play in terms of its population and wealth and power and we've learned a lot since then, but it doesn't mean that these dysfunctional qualities have entirely disappeared. And what makes it uh, particularly poignant at this moment is the fact that we have a president with no foreign policy experience, and is really quite parochial. And one of the attractions That people will have for Biden is that he served on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and that he is someone who has been schooled and skilled in the past in foreign affairs. It's a very important point. And of course, it's sad because people across Europe and Asia now are so deeply skeptical of American leadership, and we're going to need leadership to repair that and to once again make an appearance on the international scene in a
0: very constructive way. Bob, it's always great to chat with you. Thanks so much for being on ABC Radio. My pleasure, Tom. Robert Dalek, he's one of America's most distinguished presidential historians, and he's the author of How Did We Get Here? From Theodore Roosevelt to Donald Trump, published by HarperCollins.
2: This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer.
0: Well, Donald Trump has called them radical left bad people. He's blamed them for the riots taking place across America, and he's threatened to have the far-left anti-fascist group, Antifa, declared a terror group,
2: The memory of George Floyd is being dishonoured by rioters, looters and anarchists. The violence and vandalism is being led by Antifa and other radical left-wing groups. My administration will stop mob violence and will stop it cold.
0: Now, they use violence to emphasise their opposition to racism and nationalism. They're known for wearing all black often with their faces covered, and their organisation dates back to, believe it or not, before World War II. Now, insofar as you can call it a group, and that's debatable, supporters exist around the world, including in this country. So who are these anti-far members? What do they have in common with their twin supporters overseas? And what are they fighting against in our country? Dr. Troy Whitford is a lecturer in intelligence and security studies at Charles Sturt University. G'day, Troy. Hey, Tom, how are you? Very good. Now, thanks for joining us. Antifa stands for anti-fascism. Can you give us an idea of the character of this group and how it works?
1: Yeah, look, it's a leaderless resistance that tend to use what they call direct action. So there's no traditional hierarchy. So there's no real president of Antifa. What it is, it's an ideology, and it's an ideology that's essentially progressive. So you might find similar sort of ideology in, you know, the the Australian Greens Party or that that sort of progressive left position. So yes, they're they're anti-nationalist and they're probably anti-globalisation in the business sense, but certainly pro in the way of of linking for, for social justice issues.
0: In the American context, would they have been strong supporters of Bernie Sanders, the unashamed socialist?
1: Yeah, most likely, yes. Because it's such a wide variety of ideology, there'll be members that will subscribe to certain aspects of the ideology, but maybe not others. So it's a very fluid organisation, and people will tend to opt in and opt out based on the particular cause. But overall, it's left-leaning and it's progressive.
0: Fascinating to learn that the collective dates back to the 1920s in Europe. How did it come about and, and, and what were the early years like?
1: Well, most of it was in response to Italy and uh, and Germany um, in that pre-war period where there was a lot of ideological struggle between communists, between fascists and a very slim democratic movement. So they... they I guess, bros to, to fight uh, Mussolini's groups, same with Nazis as well. So they really came as opposition to that and that's where they, they began. They, similar, they were disrupting other uh, meetings uh, that were taking place between Nazi meetings and so forth, uh, Have demonstrations and whatnot. So very similar sort of things, but really were the early pioneers of trying to combat that European fascism that we saw rise and lead into um, World War II.
0: Now, Antifa is known for using violence to get their points across. A criticism of the American chapter says that they embolden the far right, who use the opportunity to act like martyrs or to say the far right is under siege. Do you see it that way?
1: Look, I think the first, what do they say? The first casualty of war is the truth, and I think both sides will, <laughs> will, will you know, will, will use that sort of rhetoric. Look, the the anti-fascists see violence as a as a natural extension of politics, as do the extreme right. Okay, so both of them actually adopt very similar operational tactics in in what they do. And there's really not a lot of difference at an operational tactical level between them. But obviously, at the ideological level, there's quite a lot.
0: Can you justify that point? I mean, the far right violently targets minorities. The left fights this. How would you respond to that? Well, the left
1: will target right-wing minorities, I mean, in some cases. I mean, you look at Andrew Bolt, the attack on him. So, you know, both will use violence as as a means to further their cause. And it's just part of what radical politics is like in general. And so, you know, whilst the ideology, whether you agree with it or not, that's one issue. But when it comes down to it, they will all troll one another. They'll disrupt each other's meetings and they will commit acts of violence if they deem necessary.
0: Now, Antifa doesn't just protest publicly. Tell me about their online work.
1: Well, look, they're big online. In fact, if it wasn't for social media, I doubt Antifa would have the same traction that it enjoys. They're quite good at mobilising both online and in person, and they'll do things like troll particular targets. They'll disrupt communications and obviously use a lot of uh, ideological campaigns, the old-fashioned propaganda type of word of campaigns, to further their cause. And so they'll band together, a bit like Anonymous does, target a particular website or a particular individual or a group and, um, you know, and sort of troll and do all those sort of mischievous things. So it's social media that's sort of driven this and made it all possible. So you don't necessarily, as I say, there's not a leadership, there's not a club where you can join and get a card. You're simply tapping into the ideology, tapping into what's going on within your area and um, either campaigning online or going
0: to protests in person. Okay, now bringing it back to Australia, what is Antifa doing here?
1: Look, most of the time, they're countering extreme right-wing gatherings, and that's what they tend to do a lot of. So they'll um, patch into um, any organisation that's going on on the extreme right, get a sense of where they're going to demonstrate when, and they'll turn up and counter that demonstration. And that's pretty much where they focus most of their efforts. There are other units where they spend a lot of time training and learning different tactics to further their causes. So they'll have anything from self-defence training through to cyber awareness and all those type of things as well. But mostly it's about countering, and in Australia at least, it's about ca- countering the, the extreme
0: right. But do we have any accurate number of Antifa followers in this country? Because the supporters are presumably unwilling to identify themselves, so what are the numbers like? What do you suspect? Well,
1: well again, and this is the thing, we've got to probably Tom, stop looking at it through a sort of Cold War lens where there's a, one group that's good and one group that's bad. Or Because in the case of Antifa, because it's an ideology. Okay, and it's fluid, people will join and then leave. So it's all based on a particular tactic or a campaign. So there's no membership, if you will. You know, the membership is simply, uh, your ideological alliance to whatever cause is that, that you want to um, further at that time. We can't think of it like we would a trade union or we can't think of it like, like a political party where it has a head and it has an organisational body. I mean, and this is what the strength is. During the 1980s and 90s, the environmentalist groups spearheaded this sort of idea of direct action, meaning you don't have to join. You simply adopt our ideology.
0: We'll provide you with some training, but you just go out and do what you
1: want to do to further the cause.
0: Back to America, Donald Trump has said he wants Antifa recognised as a terrorist group. Now, whether or not that happens, do you think the US action will have any bearing on how Australia regards its Antifa movement?
1: That's a really good question, because traditionally, when America has labeled a group of terrorist organization, our security agencies have followed, so, you know, Hezbollah or any of those other ones. So it will be interesting to see what we do in regards to that should Trump's idea get up. I mean, it's, it's going to open up a whole new range of possibilities for security over there if they do, you know, in terms of increased surveillance. They'll be able to do a lot more disruption operations against Antifa. But again, because, and this is why it's it's gonna be so strong, because it's not an organization, you can't cut the head off the snake, so to speak. So how, once it's deemed a terrorist organization, how you prove someone's a member is gonna be very, very difficult because it's such a wide ideology. And because there's no structural membership, who you target, I don't know. I suppose you'd run disruptive operations on their social media and things like that. But essentially, it's, it, there's no body there to kill. It's an ideology.
0: Okay, final question, because we on this program like to put contemporary events in a broader historical context. If we're saying lots of Antifa supporters are part of a younger tech-savvy generation who weren't alive when fascism was happening, and you mentioned fascism in Europe in the 1930s, um, isn't it fair enough that they don't recognise fascism because they weren't alive to see it?
1: Well, look, yes, but we've got to... I mean, I think part of it is is knowing what fascism is. They need to have a good understanding of... I mean, it's like they weren't around when Antifa was established either, but yet they've got a sense of what Antifa is. You know, they weren't born at that time either. And, look, the thing is, you know, I think healthy debate, healthy ideology is quite good. And I, I think what's good about it is that it is having people, getting young people thinking about politics, violence aside. So... The only problem is, is that there's a tendency within Antifa to call anything fascist that doesn't fit their worldview. And that's a bit dangerous. So I think a little more clarity on what they view as being fascist would only help their cause rather than actually... Well, I was going to
0: make the point. I mean, if they call Scott Morrison a fascist, what language do they use when it comes to real fascists? I mean, why don't they go after, say, North Korea or China's Communist Party?
1: Yeah, look, and that's exactly right. And we've got to be careful with language because language is really important. You know, and it's very powerful and you're dead right. So they need to be aware of history, need to be aware of what real fascism is and can be and target that, I think.
0: Troy, great to have you on the program.
1: Thanks, Tom. Thanks for your interest.
0: Troy Whitford is a lecturer in intelligence and security studies at Charles Sturt University. Well, that's the program this week. And before we go, let's take a trip down memory lane. Now, Richard Nixon, he came up earlier during my conversation with Robert Dalek. Get a load of this. In July 1971, and this was just a few years after America's race riots, this is what Richard Nixon told journalists, quote, I think of what happened to Greece and Rome, and you see what is left, only the pillars. What has happened, of course, is that the great civilizations of the past, as they become wealthy, as they have lost their will to live, to improve, then they have become subject to decadence that eventually destroys a civilization. The US is now reaching that period. Wow, Richard Nixon, July 1971. Was Nixon right half a century later? I'm Tom Switzer, hope you can tune in again next week.